Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. This is episode 226, and today is a special episode. Nick is in transit right now from Chicago, so I have my good friend Eric Paskin here. Hello, Eric. Hello. How are you? Good. Uh, and Eric is going to be not only co-hosting, but also going to be the the subject of my interview for the day, because Eric is a accomplished entrepreneur and family man, and actually, in a lot of ways, very similar has a very similar life to mine, so uh, this will be a cool conversation. But first, I'm going to talk about the links with Eric, and then we'll get to it. I'd like to remind everybody to go over to iTunes or whatever podcast player you're using and subscribe to the podcast because it helps us get up in the rankings and helps us get this great content that we provide you for free to as many people as possible. In addition, if you go to iTunes and leave a review for us, that will be wonderful, but it will actually reward you because if you sign up for the Less Doing Virtual Assistance Service and you send us a screenshot of that review, we will give you an extra free hour to add to your account, which is a $40 value. And then the last thing I want to remind everybody of is that to get the notes from today's show, you can go to lessdoing.com slash podcast slash 226 and you'll find all the links that we discuss. And with that, Eric, I'm going to show you just a couple things that I found this week that I thought were really interesting. Get your comments, and then we'll we'll talk about you. So the first one, and I don't know, and, and oh, by the way, actually, I guess we should tell everybody really quick. I guess we'll make this half interview, half co-hosting, but <laughs> just briefly talk about the business that you are in. So I own a residential substance abuse treatment center in Los Angeles, California, called Restore Health and Wellness Center. I'm also a certified intervention professional. And uh, over the last number of years, we've helped many, many people get clean, get sober, and uh, enter the recovery process from addiction. Which is admirable. Um, But you're also a marketing guy. Yeah, I got my start in the addiction treatment industry uh, in clinical outreach and marketing. Uh, Previously, I was, uh, believe it or not, I was a car salesman. And uh, when I got into (laughs) my own personal recovery... Uh, I didn't want to sell cars anymore, but I wanted to still use the skills that I had, and uh, somebody suggested that I sell addiction treatment, and I didn't really know what that meant, um, but that's what happened, and uh, I built a successful marketing business uh, in specifically the addiction treatment industry. Yeah, so, well, okay, so, and I want to get more to your story, obviously, but I don't know if this is necessarily applicable to your business, but it is an interesting company that I just found. It's called Upcall. So what this is is an on-demand calling network. So basically, you can set this up with them, and they will do. They'll call any number of people you want, and it could be to call do a survey. They'll call to do um, an alert. But basically, like if you need a list of a thousand people called, they can do it. Twenty-nine cents a minute. It's really cool. I mean, so like if you want, like this is something that we might try out actually with the VA service I was thinking about. Like you could have them call everyone that's, that you've ever done business with and have like a three-question survey, you know. But again, it's the kind of thing that's on demand. So you don't have to set up any like big contract or any big training. You just have – you just set it up and go in like five minutes. And provide the information and they'll yeah. just simply call or do – Yeah, and they're not um, – they're, they're like – regular people who apparently do this a lot and have good voices and they're good on the phone they can even do sales supposedly although I wouldn't necessarily trust that but even if like you just want to alert a bunch of people about something for example you can do that for example our anniversary party that we're having for my facility well okay so there you go well how many people do you think you'd have to call 250 for? people yeah so it's perfect so something like this. So up call. So anybody, uh, if you're thinking of any kind of like calling campaign, it's really cheap. Twenty nine cents a minute. If you think about it, uh, for a lot of these things, it could be as simple as a one or two minute phone call to call a whole bunch of people and just let them know about a service change or about an upcoming event or whatever it might be. It, even for like surveying, so up fidelity, they call it. Uh, increase satisfaction and retention by engaging and rewarding your customers. You can follow up after a purchase, offer a targeted discount, or call your clients before the end of a trial period. So that's Upcall. Uh, the next one, this is, a, this is a random thing, but this is a company I found called ReadyMan. And they make these wallet cards. This is the size of a credit card. And it's steel, stainless steel. And you guys will have to look at the link to see what this is. But uh, it looks like a credit card with a bunch of cutouts in it. And they have several ones. This one is the Medic one. Uh, they have one that is, I'll show you, 
here, this is a survival one with fishing lures and a saw. This is a, a lockpick one. So these are completely flat. These are the size of credit cards. And you just tear out the thing and you're ready to go. That's I think it's very cool, neat. right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have, uh, what is it? Survival stove. So this folds out. It's all flat again. This folds out and it's a stove, apparently. I guess you have to start a fire under that. Uh, this is the uh, wilderness survival one. So this is a spearhead <laughs> fishing lures. So, you know, I put a, this is the medic one. So this is like to, to clinch a bandage. This is for uh, like, there's like the tick removal. Those are needles. Very interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so, Ready Man. I, I I never had a really good justification for how self-defense and, like, w- like readiness survival stuff came into less doing, except that I just think it's, like, it is an efficiency thing in a lot of ways, the way that they have this stuff set up. So, actually, this is really cool. See this acrylic training lock that teaches you how to pick a padlock? I have that, uh, and it's really cool. I can actually pick that lock with my eyes closed now. Uh, it's surprisingly easy once you get the hang of it, but it took me about 20 minutes, and then it makes so much more sense when it's clear. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, and then this last one before we get into more about you is an article. It was actually a, uh, a study published in a uh, journal called JAMA, and it says this is how much science says you should exercise to see a difference. So uh, basically what they came up with is the authors wrote that 15 minutes of daily moderate activity was associated with a reduced risk of early death and running for 5 to 10 minutes per day was associated with a reduction in the risk of early death due to heart disease in particular. So essentially that's less than two and a half hours a week of moderate intensity. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at this and that obviously if you're like training for some big event that's not going to make sense. If people want to know what really the minimum is to feel healthy, you could say that it's at 15 minutes a day. But the truth is, is that if you're just active and moving around, that's probably enough. But the thing I found interesting about that, particularly the 15 minutes, is uh, in the Ethics of Our Fathers, which is a uh, part of the Torah, it's 2,100 years old, they specifically say that, that you should break you should break a sweat 15 minutes a day. 2100 years ago. Now, let's get to you. So those are the links for today. Oh, and also I want to remind people as well that we have a really cool offering at workshop.lessdoing.com, which is for a three and a half hour video of a workshop that Nick and I did on outsourcing. It is really valuable. People are liking it a lot. Uh, but you can go to workshop.lessdoing.com and see a seven minute preview of that video. So, Eric. Now, so the uh, addiction treatment business. Now, there's there's a lot of things I actually want to ask you about here. But so you started with consulting to other companies, but now you actually have a treatment center. I actually right? started working for treatment centers. I was an employee. And then after a number of years, Where? I worked for a facility that's no longer in business called The Recovery Place. Uh, I worked for an organization out of Pennsylvania called Steps to Recovery. Uh, I then started my own consulting business. And then realized that uh, even being a great consultant uh, to treatment centers, uh, uh, a lot of what I wanted to control was quality of care, comprehensive nature of treatment, all the things that once the clients were referred to these centers that I used to consult for, that I no longer really had a say in. So that's why I started the treatment, the actual treatment center. Now, so... Unless someone's been through a recovery center, they probably don't really have a good idea, a good idea of like what a recovery program looks like. I think most people, myself included, probably just think of like AA. And even that, you know, I basically know that there's 12 steps and you go to meetings. Like, that's what I know. So what is, what's the difference between a good recovery program? And I don't mean like quality per se, but like an effective one, I guess, and not... Well, there's all different types of treatment for addiction, and, and I want to make a clear distinction between uh, addiction treatment and recovery and, as you mentioned, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and 12-step uh, peer support groups because those are all very different things. Right. Um, you know, for instance, at, at Restore Health and Wellness Center, we're an evidence-based treatment center. We, use, uh, we have five licensed clinical therapists. Uh, they're practicing evidence-based practices. Uh, it's psychotherapy-based. Um, they're doing uh, kind of underlying issues work with patients 
to try to figure out why they are doing the things they're doing so that they can address and kind of create strategies so that they won't fall into those traps, per se. Um, because once you're clean physically, once you have detoxified and the drugs have been removed from your system, you're as clean as you're going to get. Right. However, you have to change the way you think and the way you feel so that you can interact differently in the world so that you don't go back to active addiction. Uh, and some of that we do utilize 12 steps. Well, now, wait, now you said, I, I just want to start with that because you said active addiction, right? So there is that idea that it never goes away, right? That feeling uh, or that desire. There is, there is a belief. I mean, there, and there are different schools of thought. Um, I tend to subscribe to a, a disease model concept that, I, that there's this disease uh, called addiction and that it's always there. But whether you are actively participating in the, the part of the disease that is trying to kill you, which would right. be taking drugs, that doesn't have to occur. But yet the disease still would be present just in a state of remission. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, okay, so continue. So, that, you know, the, if. So, uh, then, there, then you had mentioned uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, which is a support group, which yeah. is, a, a, if you want to call it, a philosophical, philosophical belief systems um, and a series of steps that, that people do when they're in these meetings and they take the principles behind the behind those and practice them in their daily lives and many 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 people have found recovery through that uh, but that is not treatment uh, that could be an adjunct to treatment uh, treatment what I, what we do in treatment is patients live with us 24 hours a day they have a, a combination of group and individual uh, therapy. They have a supportive environment and, and people in, the, in their community supporting them. And that's really treatment. And once they leave treatment, one of the things that we suggest that patients do is find a 12-step support group. Like, an NA like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, and there's there's many many twelve step fellowships that were based out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's just one thing to support them in their recovery. And then we talk about recovery, and recovery in 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 my eyes is much more of a a personal journey. Mm -hmm. So like what I identify as recovery for me may not be what the next person identifies as recovery, uh, and I think it's a personal journey and and. People have to define what that is for themselves. Sure. Yeah. So, then that makes sense. Now, another part of what you do, and maybe not less so now, but is interventions, right? So you said you're a certified interventionist. So, so yeah, I'm a certified intervention professional, and for a lot of years, um, I helped families uh, facilitate getting people into treatment. Uh, when they weren't necessarily internally motivated to do so. Yeah. And now that, I mean, that's got to be a, a hell of a sales process. <laughs> I mean, you're asking somebody to give up a lot of freedoms, right, to, to go into treatment. <laughs> it, it's a, yes and no, because what, the, what, what you're asking them to give up, which they're classifying as freedoms, are actually the things that are keeping them in bondage. So I don't approach it as a sales technique. Uh, I try to tap into that healthy part of them that I think is there, that I know is there, that I think is that I know is present in everyone. And I try to speak to that healthy part of the person and try to try to negotiate with that healthy part of that person so that they will go to treatment. Well, so what, can you can you be a little more specific? You know, is it like this is what you could have if you weren't addicted, or like these are the? I mean, what what aspect of someone's personality are you going to be speaking to that's actually effective that they're going to just they're going to get it? Or well, what I try to what I try to do is create an environment that's supportive of the person seeking help, yeah. and sometimes that's leveraging uh, family members. Uh, it's utilizing. 
Uh, it's utilizing timing. It's finding people at their most vulnerable moment, and and basically, it's pretty hard to ca- it's pretty hard to explain. Um, it's magical when it happens. When when it's done and it's done right, it's a it's a magical process. And really, what I do is I try to tap into people's hope because everybody hopes for something better. They just don't know that it's possible. Yeah, sure. But so now, obviously, that's the very first step because then they actually have to go to treatment. I mean, have you had any situations where you had an intervention? The person was like, "Okay, yeah, you're right. I'm ready," and then like they disappear. Sure, more, more, on more than one occasion. Yeah. Um, what, what we try to do uh, when I when I'm doing an intervention, uh, what I'm trying to do at, right at that moment when the person agrees to seek help, we we try to get them in right at that moment. What, like, we don't get like literally we we okay you're ready great you're you ready to go let's, let's let's go upstairs and pack a bag. Wow. Uh, I yeah. it, because. You have this window of opportunity uh, where somebody either they see they have a, a moment of clarity or there's uh, something touches them, and uh, I, I, a lot of times I, I don't think it's quantifiable what that is. Yeah, but it's that that's that small window, and and you don't want to lose that opportunity because um, it happens where you people say I'm going to leave I'm, I'm I'll go tomorrow the or something. and then tomorrow they've snuck out there now so you said it's magical I mean is this something in this work that you're doing you're obviously having an enormous impact on people's lives but it's it's also seeing a very dark side of humanity in a lot of ways right I mean so do you do you feel the reward from what you're I mean because you are doing a really amazing thing for people and you're you're probably I mean I'm sure you're saving a ton of lives you're saving a lot of families but uh, how is that balance of it being just very difficult to see people in that state and then also the reward? It, it's still difficult after all these years to see uh, what addiction does to people yeah. uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the damage it does to families. Uh, but the work is really rewarding. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an unbelievable feeling when you meet a family and you meet somebody who's struggling with addiction who literally is hopeless and you get them to not only agree to treatment but then once you track their progress and you you continue to work with the family uh post intervention you you see the change you see uh the family becoming stronger and healthier you see the identified patient who went to treatment uh remain abstinent and find and define what recovery is for them and flourish i mean Years later, I, I get calls from families, and and that that always overrides how much sadness and sorrow that 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 I do see. Yeah, it's still hard to see somebody in pain, uh, and I don't want to say that you become numb to it or immune to it, but I, to some degree, uh, you 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 understand what you're dealing with, and it's almost like being desensitized, but. It's still it's still painful to see. I guess it's, it's more like compartmentalizing, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Do you? It's okay. So families are calling you years later. Uh, is treatment the kind of like, so? There's certain interventions in all all different aspects of medicine and life where it's the right thing to do, but but people who do it are some percentage likely to have to do it again, right? So, how often do you see that? Because I know you've had people go through the program several times. Uh, and I guess on the one hand, it'd be way worse if they went through the program once, needed it, and ended up killing themselves instead. But obviously, there are those people who have to come through it more than once. I mean, I'll, I'll use my, my own personal experience. I tried to get sober many, many times. And uh, I didn't eventually, I didn't get sober and, and stay sober until I was 30 years old. Um, so it's one of those things where, uh, again, we talk about this kind of magical situation where you never know when the person's going to get it and so uh, I've had I've had patients who seem to be 100% internally motivated and wanting to get well and never never remain never achieve or remain abstinent and then I've had patients that I've worked with who seem like they had little 
or no motivation at all, uh, were purely externally motivated, had all types of consequences if they didn't get sober and stay sober, and yet those people years later are sober, flourishing, and having amazing lives. So to some extent, it, it's, it's hard to identify who is going to uh, come to treatment once and, and be a success and who's going to come 20 times. Yeah. Well, and, and what, I mean, and I know this situation must come up, but what, what happens when the family is part of the problem? I like to say that as much as they can be a part of the problem, they're also the solution. So what happens is addiction doesn't just uh, destroy the, the person using drugs, but it, it has life-damaging and uh, life-changing consequences for everybody in the family. And uh, really, it's my belief that that family has to get well for that mm-hmm. patient to get well. I really believe that, that that it doesn't happen without each other. Now it can't. It doesn't necessarily happen at the same time or at the same place. But certainly, one of the things that uh, I practice uh, a model of, of intervention. It's called the invitational model, where I believe an intervention is as much for the family as it is for the identified patient, and it's to work with that family to get well, uh, to take them to a place of wellness and, and healing so that when that patient does or does not get help, that that family continues to have uh, support themselves and support each other in the, fa- in the family unit so that eventually that the identified patient will get help. Again, like it's intervention is one of the things that a lot of people see on TV, and it's like, and that's obviously not the invitational version. No, that's that's that, always that's, the guy coming that's to the actually, door like, what the fuck is everyone doing here? That's actually uh, what's known as the Johnson model, and um, <laughs> which is a model that I've trained in and 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 ha- and and early in my career utilized. What I found for myself. And many people will, there are practitioners that only utilize the Johnson model who are very good interventionists. But for me and for what I found worked for me and what I felt was less confrontational and more nurturing, I found this model to work better for me, Um, the invitational model. How How does the Johnson model, I mean... The Johnson model, in effect, is is a surprise. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the uh, the addicted individual does not know it's coming. It is usually uh, something that's staged, and I I almost feel like when I was doing that model of, of intervention, I was starting off on the wrong foot from the get go because I'm bringing somebody who's already sick into a situation where they feel they have to get more defensive right? Uh, as opposed to with the invitational model I'm simply telling somebody hey that we're going to have a family meeting we'd really love it if you would be, you'd be a part of the meeting we're going to have that meeting with or without you uh, because your family's asked me to come and there's no, there's no secret that this person's addicted right. I mean they know it, the family knows it, I know it. So, why even su- you know why even surprise them with this confrontational event as opposed to saying like, look, we all realize that this is a difficult situation and, and that you're not in a good place. Why don't we just talk about it? Yeah. What, well, what, what would you rather go to? Right, and of course, and also you need those people to trust you in some way because they're going to be packing their bags and coming away with you essentially, or like committing themselves to you and your program for X number of months. So I imagine that that's a much more difficult place to come from. <laughs> now, how often, like, how long are people typically in treatment? There, there are, uh, you know, you hear this 28 yeah. days. Uh, my belief, and I think there is a statistical evidence, is that the longer you keep a client engaged in treatment, uh the greater their chances of uh, remaining abstinent are, um, which I think is a lot. It's, it makes mm. perfect sense. Um, 
I always use this analogy. Uh, if you're if you were walking in the desert or in a forest for ten years, and then one day you decide you want to stop, start off at the place you started at. I mean, right. you stop and you turn around, and you have a long walk back. So it's a journey, um, and it, it's a continuous process. And the people who I know that have long-term recovery, they routinely. Uh, do things to to recharge their batteries, uh, you know, in, in regards to self exploration and growth, and uh, you know, very much like entrepreneurs do when they go to you know leadership conferences right. and workshops, and you know, many people I know they they're they're continuously in going to you know psychotherapists or they're going on spiritual retreats because it's it's a lifelong journey, uh, and I think that. Um, for us, I like to see people making a minimum commitment to treatment for 90 days. Yeah. Well, okay, and so then, based on what you said before and, and that, are, in your opinion, are things like uh, Ibogaine and Ayahuasca, is that, that's like an accessory? I mean, like, it sounds like from what you're saying, like, that wouldn't be considered really like a treatment. That's more like the AA group that you go to after to get further down well, the line. Well, uh, again, the, the what treatment is now wasn't what treatment was twenty years ago, and yeah. I and I'm sh- and I I would find it hard to believe that in twenty years, uh, what we what we are calling treatment looks like what we're doing today, yeah. right? It's always an evolutionary process, and I think there are more and more people that are subscribing to medication assisted therapy uh, in regards to treatment. Um, our programs are abstinence-based. The program that I own is an abstinence-based program. Um, but I do see value in, I mean, years ago and still to this day in, in many parts of the country, they utilize methadone. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's Suboxone or Subutex. Um, but those are all for opiates, right? Those are for opiates, yeah. as is Ibogaine. Um, oh, so, it, it, it's certainly, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that as, as look, addiction is a, a worldwide, worldwide health crisis, and we will continue to look for tools to combat that and try to help people. And, the, and those may be tools, you know, they're, they're becoming tools, more and more tools like sure. that. And, and more and more people are advocating for for uses of, of those medications, if you want to call them. Yeah. Now, you've talked a lot about drugs, obviously. Like, so, I mean, are you seeing, you're seeing, most, I mean, and also, I think most people know if they read the news that we have an opioid addiction problem in the country right now. But so, are you, are you mostly seeing drug abuse? Or are you seeing a lot of alcohol abuse also? or? So, I see uh, a lot of both. Um, what, I, what I have seen... I believe a, a good majority of our patients now are opiate dependent. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that has to do with access to to very strong opiate pain medication that a handful of years ago didn't exist. Yeah. So uh, one of these things is we talk about uh, an addiction crisis. Well, there's always been an addiction crisis. I think what happens what? is that... Um, you know, in certain parts of our country, there've always this crisis has always existed. Uh, I believe that uh, access to this uh, to opiate pain medication in uh, middle class suburban areas has made addiction become more of a prevalent discussion and topic of conversation because it's more evident. And these are primarily legally prescribed drugs we're talking about too, right? I, I think in most cases, many, many of the patients that come uh, through our doors at Restore, they, they were prescribed a pain medication uh, for a surgery or for something uh, that was ailing them. Uh, they didn't start off uh, using heroin right. uh, intravenously, <clears throat> although some have. Uh, but most clients, there was a progression where it was pain medication um, when they couldn't get the pain medication or they could no longer afford it because of the expense. 
they went to heroin because heroin is a is the same class of drug. Yeah. It's, it's an it's an opiate, uh, and it's uh, much much cheaper. But I mean, that's that's really scary. That I mean, you're 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 talking about people who are going to a medical professional for some pain, something that they be fixed, and then they end up getting addicted to an opiate. Now, is that also could that possibly the addiction aspect of itself because those people may have never just been exposed to something like that before and it just triggers something in them. I mean, there is that idea of an addictive personality, right? That's there's that, there's that belief, but I also believe if you take 10 people and you give them opiates over a period of time, nine out of the 10 people will be dependent on that opiate. They'll be physically dependent on that opiate. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to talk about, you know, I, can even get into the discussion during this conversation about brain chemistry and changes yeah. or predisposition to addiction. I think all of those things can play a part, but I think that we're underestimating just the physical, the strength of these these medications. So it's fun, not funny, but I, I was I was telling you about the Nick. So if anyone hasn't watched the Nick, which is, stands for the Knickerbocker, it's a really great two season show on uh, on Amazon now. That it was originally on Showtime about the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York City in 1900, and uh, they were pretty much inventing every surgery as they went. Uh, the doctors were shooting up cocaine intravenously before they went into surgery, and one of the doctors who was addicted to cocaine was then treated with this miracle new drug from the Bayer Company called heroin. I mean, it it was a wild time, but this one doctor who is the the, the star of the show got clean and so what happened was he was addicted to cocaine went into a treatment center where they treated him with heroin so he became addicted to heroin and cocaine and a a colleague kidnapped him from the facility and took him out on a boat basically in the middle of the ocean for two weeks and he detoxed basically Uh, and he wouldn't let the guy off the boat until he could tie these ten knots that he had never done before Um, but he comes back, he comes back to the hospital, and he wants to be reinstated, and he tells them that he doesn't want to do surgery anymore, he wants to do research, and he believes that he's now decided that uh, disease or that addiction is a disease, and he wants to find the cure. And this guy on the board, this stuffy old you know, 1900s guy, says, that's a preposterous. He said, addiction is merely a, it's a, a moral uh, like Failing. deficit. Yeah. It's a moral deficit of someone with low character. And he responds, and he says... Let me uh, inject you with cocaine and heroin every day for a week, and we'll see how your resolve holds up. And that's exactly what you're talking about. But the reason I also asked about this is so I, you know, I, everyone who listens to this knows that I had Crohn's disease. And one of the things with Crohn's is that it's a class A illness. You can get anything legally, including medical marijuana. And at one point in my medicine cabinet, I had Oxy, I had Percocet, I had Vicodin, I have all that. And I never really needed to take it, but I had morphine twice in the hospital. And I'll be honest, it was, I mean, I, I almost feel funny saying this, but it was amazing. <laughs> you know, and I've never been a drug user, but I, the, when as soon, because I was in so much pain, and as soon as I got hit with the morphine, it was like, it was like the most amazing shower I'd ever taken, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I didn't seek it again. You know, and even having those pills in my cabinet, the Vicodin, the Percocet, the, 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 everything, um, it never, it never even like drew. Me, I wasn't drawn to it, and I don't think that I personally have an addictive personality, except for maybe for sugar sometimes. But so, there's got to be some element there that is a predisposition. Well, I think there's a lot of things that uh, can determine that. Uh, it, it also, you, you are in a healthy place uh, emotionally, probably. A lot of time, maybe not I mean, physically, maybe not pressed. physically, but but you had something had support. supporting. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, a lot of times when people, I believe, um, turn to uh, to drugs, it's because they don't have a positive support system in their lives, uh, or there is some type of trauma mm-hmm. or something that the drug makes that go away or at least at least dulls it enough where people can tolerate living right Um, because sometimes people have such traumatic things happen in their lives that and they don't know how to get through that or continue to live with it they need to find something that helps them cope with it 
Um, so uh, one may argue that you just had a, a positive support system. One argument might be that you don't have a predisposition to addiction. Uh, and the the one or the other argument is that you just simply weren't exposed to having to take it enough to right. to ignite uh, a dependence. Yeah, I mean, so that was because that was one thing they told me was you know the morphine lasts like twenty minutes basically, right? Um, and I know the the two times I had it, it wasn't two times in the same visit to the hospital. It was one time and then another, like a month later I went back. Yeah, and then a month later I had to go back and I basically, I I walked in there and I was like, I know what's happening. I'm having a Crohn's inflammation attack. Please don't give me Tylenol. Please don't give me this. Just give me some morphine. Mm -hmm. I need a little bit of relief. Um, And then they're like, okay. And they gave me that look. And they're like, we'll give you one. (laughs) Um, But again, I can say that, that I, it was, it was an, I, I remember saying to, I remember looking at Anna and saying, Jesus, I can totally see how this can be addicting. So imagine that sense of relief that you yeah. were seeking. Imagine having something so emotionally painful that you need to seek relief from it. It's the same feeling. Right, right. Well, but I mean, I even, I know lots of stories of friends, parents who had back problems, and I'm doing air quotes, their back was hurting, and the doctor gave them Vicodin, mm-hmm. or the doctor gave them Percocet. You know, and then that was, and then 10 years later, they've been taking them every day. Mm-hmm. So, but so someone like yourself, so you've been clean for like nine years now. Correct. And I've seen you, and this is actually, I want to transition to talking about you as more of an entrepreneur and a father too. I've seen you, even currently, be in what should be a very stressful situation. And it doesn't ever seem, to me outwardly, that it's even something in the back of your mind that that would be something to turn to. So one one of the things that I think takes place in when you enter, uh, and I want to be careful saying this, long-term recovery, is that, uh, that I know how to practice consequential thinking. So what, 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 what do I mean by that? Is that um, I have a history of what my life was like when I used drugs and alcohol. Um, and I didn't like it. And I didn't like the person I become. I didn't like the isolation. I didn't like not having any money. I didn't like not having any friends. I didn't like not speaking with my family. So what's happened is that after a period of time, I was able to make this connection that when I use drugs, for whatever reason, to seek relief from whatever, that uh, I can't stop using drugs and that I lose everything. And because I can practice consequential thinking, I, I no longer feel that that's the answer anymore. Right. So, uh, although, yeah, currently I'm in a, a very difficult situation in my life because of uh, an illness with one of my children, um, drugs are no longer the answer for me. The answer is uh, taking better care of myself during those times, yeah. uh, finding more people to support me emotionally. Um, turning to, uh, you know, growing closer with my wife so that we can support each other. Um, but no drugs that, that doesn't cross my mind as, as an answer anymore. And I think if you ask most people who are in long-term recovery, um, they would say, I know that that's not going to fix anything. Well, and now, do you have any, and you don't have to necessarily know the exact number per se, but do you have a sense statistically or anecdotally of, like, at what point of, like, at many months or years of being clean is somebody 90% likely to stay clean, you know? Or, I mean, like, what, where is that, where do they turn the corner? Where is that, like, threshold? I think there are some statistics of, of you know, how many people stay, remain absent after X amount of years. I would I wouldn't be comfortable quoting that. Um, well, even you personally, like I, I I would imagine. I obviously didn't know you ten or eight years ago, but I imagine when you first got clean, first got clean, you probably weren't comfortable even being around people who were users or who were drinking. No, so I learned early on, like especially in early recovery, like I avoided anybody who drank or drugged because uh, I knew that I was more likely to drink or drug being around people like that 
than the chance that they would stop drinking and drugging being around me. And so at what point, for you, did it become okay? For me, I would say I was around three years sober before I felt comfortable with my own reco- in my own recovery process. Yeah. Uh, and and still I don't go hanging out in the bar right. and uh on a regular basis. Um but I, I felt confident that uh I had gotten past that and I, I no longer craved or desired or 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 obsessed about drug use. Um but a lot of that was because the conditions of my life had changed in such a positive right. direction that I, I had something to look at right. and say, well, look how good my life is after three years, or look how good my life is after, after two years, or look how good my life is at five years. Uh, and what happens, what I see with the patients that I treat at my facility and at uh, lots of other facilities uh, around the country uh, is that uh, one of the, the hallmark signs of active addiction or somebody in very early recovery is uh, the need for instant gratification. That's, that's one of the reasons why people use drugs is because they know that in an instant it's going to change the way they feel. It's like the buy now button on Amazon, right? Correct, <laughs> correct. So, unfortunately... Uh, I'll use that analogy, walking in the desert. It took a long time to walk 10 years in the desert. It's going to take a a long time for your conditions to change. And too many times we're focusing on outward conditions, how much money, how much success, the girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever set of circumstances that we think are going to make us feel better. And either those don't come fast enough or we get them and they don't really change the way we feel. Um, uh, too routinely, my patients don't remain vigilant long enough. They don't continue working long enough on themselves to see start to, start to see those changes take place. They don't happen fast enough. Yeah. And so what happens is they say, see, nothing's changed, and they go back to using. Instead of saying... Well, maybe if I wait a little bit longer, something will change. Well, and I'm, I'm almost thinking more about the person who, you know, they're in early recovery and they're, okay, I'm going to avoid all the people who are drinking and doing drugs. And then three years later, like yourself, it's like, okay, I can be around it and it's okay. But then where does it get to the point where, you know, the, the alcoholic or whatever says, well, I'm, I'm in a place, I, I should be able to have one drink, you know, and then they can't. Well, that, that, again, that's very personal. Yeah. I, I mean... Because um, I've seen that, actually. I'm sure I, you I know many people who have gone back to active addiction thinking that I've, I've stayed sober this amount of time. Certainly now... One hit. <laughs> I can just... I can have one. And, uh, you know, there's this old slogan in uh, the 12-step fellowships, which is one, is, one is one is too many, a thousand is never enough. You know, right. uh, I don't want the one to snowball to the a thousand. So I would, ju- I would rather just n- not have the yeah, one. Right. Um, well, but so now somebody who, and this is a very specific question, but I'm just curious, somebody who has overcome uh, like opiate addiction, what are they supposed to do for pain management if they do actually have a need for it? You know, so that person gets in a car accident. So we're not. At, I, I, I certainly am, am not telling people that they should be martyrs, right? <laughs> um, and certainly there are need. There are medical situations that arise where where you're going to need pain medication. Um, I, I feel uh, for myself personally, if I was in one of those situations, it would be important for me to have somebody managing the pain medication and the administering of the pain medication. And I'd also have to be transparent with my support group and the people around me. Hey, I have this surgery I'm afraid of. I'm going to have to take pain medication. And I don't know. It's been a long time, and I'm afraid of what it might ignite. And I think the more open you can be about it, the better you can uh, protect yourself against... Uh, a relapse and uh, going back to active addiction. 
Sure, yeah. So now shifting gears a little bit to the, your your sort of more life in general, because you you're as I mentioned earlier in the in the recording, you're a, a very very close friend of mine, and you're also pretty much the only person that I am uh, that I'm close with that has a very similar life to mine in terms of life or in terms of I hate I don't say work life balance because I don't believe in that. It's really a work life integration. But you have two kids. You are a very very involved dad. You also have a business in multiple states, you know. So, is there something that helps you manage all that? I mean, one of the things that I, I do know and I've seen is that you can pretty much work from anywhere. Mm-hmm. You don't have an office, really, and well, at least in New York. So, what are some of the strategies that you use to be able to balance it? So, for me, I had to prioritize what was important in my life. Um, I, you know, I need a certain amount of money to live. Um, and obviously I have to, a business that, that I have to be a part of so that it, it succeeds and that um, I can continue to help people and I can also continue to support my family. Um, but I really think a lot of it comes down to prioritizing what was important to me. So one of the things when I was in active addiction, what I wanted more than anything was to not be alone. Hmm. And a, a lot of how I approach things is as out of my history and so I didn't want to be alone so now I've been gifted with a beautiful family a beautiful wife two beautiful children and uh, at periods of my life um, I I have gotten lost or addicted to my work where I neglected my family and my children and I I needed to reprioritize those things Um, one of the things that you know I've learned from you is is about delegating things that uh, I don't necessarily need to be a part of. So yes, I own a successful facility, and yes, that takes a lot of my time. But I can also set schedules when people can get in touch with me. I can I, I have an executive team who makes many of the decisions, or at least comes up with. Uh, what the problem is and comes and presents me with multiple solutions and then we can determine from there uh, a lot of the things that are taking place in my business uh, don't really require my day-to-day minute-by-minute kind of focus and so that allows me to focus on things that uh, do bring me great joy like my family and like my friends Um, and also it allows me to focus on the things that I think I excel at. So I'm not a clinician, um, but I have great clinicians that work for me. Um, I'm a great relationship builder. And our facility uh, gets most of its clients through relationships that I've built over the years in the community with other therapists, with uh, doctors, with lawyers, with anybody who has a need to refer a patient. But that's where my passion lies. My passion lies in communicating uh, what the recovery process can do for somebody. And so if I can focus on the things, I believe that if I can kind of almost with like laser sharp focus, focus only on the things that I'm really exceptionally good at, then all the other stuff, can be handled by people that are much better at those things than I am. Um, and that's what will create a successful business. Well, I mean, that's incredibly on point, and I couldn't agree with that more. So now this this will sound like a redundant question, so you have to come up with something other than that. But what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. And this is the last question, so. So top three ways to be more effective mm-hmm. in their life. Whatever. You interpret that how you like. Life, business, fatherhood, whatever. That's a really tough question. That's, and a, good, that's why it's a good it's, one. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, so uh, I think the, f- the first thing is identifying what you want in life. I-, I think without being able to identify what you hope to achieve, you can't you can't do those things. So, so kind of maybe a short list of... of Goals is, is super important for me to have. Mm-hmm. Um, identify what you're not good at. I mean, 
I, I think it's I, I think too I think a lot of times uh, speaking as an entrepreneur um, and a guy who has a, a fairly large and healthy ego I want to <laughs> believe that I'm good at everything but if I can step back and take like an honest appraisal there's plenty of things that are not my I'm not strong at and there are somebody else that is better at that um, than I am and by letting go of certain things, I actually, one, I have more clarity to focus on things that I am good at and that I do enjoy. And then uh, it frees up my time, simply. Yeah. I think, I think there's all, that's the one thing I can't get back is the, is the time that I've spent. Um, and uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time wa- you know, being wasted. Um, and three is... Uh, Enjoy, enjoy your life. I mean, enjoy your life. I, I think I spent so many years in active addiction being really unhappy, wanting to kill myself on most days, trying to actually kill myself. I, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But over a, a, a long part of my life, um, really being very unhappy and realizing that life is extremely too short to be unhappy and to do things that I don't want to do. And, um, you know, be passionate about what you do and, and love what you do. Awesome. Okay, well, so, Eric, where, first of all, if anybody is listening to this episode and is dealing with addiction, whether it's with themselves or with a family member or a friend, uh, and this is not to pitch Eric per se, but what where, what's a, where can people go to find it's find out about you and to deal with that what's so the to best find thing? out about me and yeah. restore health and wellness center you can go to restorecenterla.com um and we'll have that in the show notes and then. and there are so many resources for addiction there's so many free resources there are so many 12-step support groups uh, there's so many crisis lines uh well, but if somebody goes to your website, can they get on the phone with somebody? And certainly, you know. if they if they go to my website, we have a toll free eight hundred number uh, that will always get a live individual that works at my facility. Do you know what the number is? Offhand, eight 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 five one nine one five seven zero. Sometimes there's people in their car and they just want to get on the phone. So certainly, there'll be somebody to answer the phone and kind of direct that person to the right the right help. Wonderful. Well, Eric, thank you. Thanks for having me. And. Uh, well, I'm gonna, obviously I'll talk to you soon because you're staying in my house, so. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs>